And so, Father, as we look at this uh, topic of legacy, I pray, Holy Spirit, just anoint me and give me the ability to communicate what you've put in my heart this week. We thank you for just being faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. James Chung is the National Director of Evangelism for a ministry called InterVarsity. It's a great campus outreach. It's been around for a lot of years, and it's made a difference for a lot of young men and women. James tells the story of a time in his life when he was trying to discern God's direction for his ministry life. He had been to college, to seminary, and uh, had applied, first of all, for an internship in a church at South Korea. He mentions it was a rather small church for South Korea, just about 20,000 members. And uh, it didn't work out there, and so he came to Seattle to interview for an assistant to the president position under the president of a large relief organization who was also a Korean man as well. James asked this older Korean veteran of ministry and business um, two questions that he said he always asks ministry veterans. The first question is, what advice would you give to a young pastor? The second question was, do you have any regrets in ministry? And the second question, he said, is where he gets his best information about the regrets that we have. When he asked this second question to this Korean man, the man slumped over in his chair with obviously fe- obvious feelings of regret. He then told the story of his journey to this young preacher. He had spent 10 years of his life on one of the mercy ships anchored mostly off of the coast, the west coast of Africa. And there they ministered to literally thousands of people and saw amazing things happen. Ten years of that, seeing these incredible things take place. And after that ten-year period, he moved on to South Africa, where he spent ten years on land doing relief work uh, with the same organization. And during that time, He saw the nation struggle through apartheid and Mandela coming to office. And he considered that a great privilege of his life to be part of such an incredible cultural shift that had taken place. And it was while he was there in South Africa that a younger missionary, less experienced than he, came and gave his life to to serving the people of South Africa as well. But what bothered this Korean minister was that as he watched this young man's life, he considered that he really wasn't doing much of anything. In fact, he said the only thing that he did was to choose three people, and he limited all of his ministry time to three people. And he actually berated this young missionary and questioned him about his motives and his methods of ministry, saying, why is it you're only spending time with three people? And as he told the story, of this young missionary, the Korean man looked up and now there are tears in his eyes. And he said these words as far as his regrets. Quote, when I look at my ministry, I have no legacy. I criticize the one who spent most of his time with only three. Yet those three made a difference. One became the pastor of a major church. Another became a kingdom-minded businessman who made an impact on the business world. 
And the third became a major government official. His regret is that he didn't pour himself into the lives of other people. Leaving a legacy really matters. And I've defined legacy for you in the past, but legacy is literally, if you study the etymology of the word, the definition, it is a body of people sent on a mission. A legacy is a body of people sent on a mission. And I want to say very, very clearly, legacy is about people. Legacy is not about buildings and businesses and bank accounts. You can have all of those things and leave them in your will to your children and still not leave a legacy. That's scary. You can have all those things, pass them on to your kids and not have a legacy. Legacies are comprised of the people that you influence and leave behind. People whose lives you have impacted. People who will benefit for having known you. I want to talk about three things today. Three points. First of all, I want to say that God is a God of generations. God is a God of generations. And I want to read from Exodus 3. This is where Moses is standing at the burning bush. And in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, that is at the burning bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. God said, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God introduced himself to to Moses like this. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, God is doing more than reciting a a history lesson to Moses here. When God revealed himself to Moses as as the I am, he revealed himself as a God of generations. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each one of them played a critical role in the plan of God. There was a legacy that was passed from God to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, to Isaac from Jacob, and from Jacob to his children as well. God is concerned about legacy. In the book of Genesis, we read the account of Abraham when the men, the angelic visitors came to um, judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember the story. And they came to Abram's tent. And it says, they got up from the meal that he had prepared for them. This is Genesis 18, 16. They got up from the meal and they looked towards Sodom. And as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord asked, should I hide my plan from Abraham? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And then God says this, I have singled him out so that, I have singled him out so that, He will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. 
then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. Look at that verse. After Abraham directs his sons and their families, then, after he directs his sons, then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. God's promise to Abraham was a legacy. And the promises to Abraham, if you'll study his life, and I don't have time to delve into it deeply here, but the promises to Abraham were fulfilled not in his lifetime, but in his legacy. Not in his lifetime, but in his legacy. And I want to say that your purpose in being on this earth will be in process of being fulfilled long after you're gone. If you do this right. If you do some legacy planning, your purpose will be in process long after you're gone. Do you realize that you will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for your works immediately after your death? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, we go to some heavenly realm. Nobody really knows where it is. We think it's on the other side of the Milky Way or something, but I personally think the heaven that he's referring to is the heaven right around us. And I think they're part of the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on in this race. I believe that is a much more accurate way to look at things. Heaven is not so far away. When your loved ones die, they're really not that far removed. That's good to know. But To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will be enjoying the blessing of God until the final day that Daniel the prophet saw and that John saw. The day when the small and the great stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Then we will be rewarded. Now that might be 10 years from now. That may, might be 50,000 years, earth years from now. We don't know when that will be. But we are not rewarded for our work until the very end, the consummation when God gives out our eternal destinies and rewards. Now I want to ask this, why the delay? Why doesn't the reward come immediately? I'll tell you why. Because part of your reward is still being compiled after you die by those who you influenced in your lifetime. And those who are carrying out the work that you passed on to them. <laughs> That's a pretty good God, isn't it? We get rewarded when we are at rest, so to speak. And I question that rest and what rest really means in heaven. Because I think we're going to be quite busy. But we get rewarded even in our time of rest for the work that continues to go on in the lives of those that we touch. That is huge. Do you see why probably some unknown people are going to be some of the most rewarded people in heaven? People whose names perhaps you never heard of. A mother that raised a godly son or daughter that God lifted up to impact the nations. The mother of a Billy Graham who poured herself into that son. The mother of a Wesley 
who poured herself into her children, and they became world changers. That mother is in heaven just having all kinds of stuff put in her account. Isn't that amazing? And so our reward just goes on and on. That's why legacy is so important. Legacy is living a life that lasts long after we're gone. Your gift, your life is to be a gift that keeps on giving. A life that is continually amassing reward. God is a God of generations. Be encouraged by that. And really want to really make your life count. And you say, well, I didn't do much. Well, you have opportunities to influence people that will influence people that will influence people. And speaking of a generational God, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, Timothy, the things I commit to you, commit to, to others who will teach others also. Right there is Paul, Timothy, those Timothy teaches and those that they, there's four generations right there in that verse. And Paul gets the reward of all that. <laughs> Pretty amazing. So God is a God of generations. The second thing I want to point out is that each generation is uniquely designed by God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made each of those characters unique. Study their stories. Sure, they had some similarities between them, made some of the same mistakes even, but they were uniquely designed by God for their generation. And I'll talk more about that in the second message. The worlds in which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived were somewhat different There's an old ancient Arab proverb that says this, men resemble the times more than they resemble their fathers. Interesting. Men resemble the times more than they resemble their fathers. We are influenced by what's going on around us all of the time. I I, um, heard of a book this week and I got it and started reading it and it's It's a heavy read, and it's fine print, and it's thick, so it's going to take me a while to get through, but it's called Generations. And the subtitle is The History of America's Future. The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069. And so we have 400 plus years, between 400 and 500 years of history, of American history. This book is fascinating. It's not a Christian book. It's a secular book, but but it does target things such as Great Awakenings and things like that that took place. It is fascinating. And the authors found that in American history, generations cycle, there are four generations that continually cycle over and over again from the time of the Puritans up until now. There was one exception to that cycle, and that was during the period of the Civil War when things were absolutely disastrous in this country. But using this cycle... They predicted what millennials would be like as adults. Now, this book was written in 1991, so it's 27... This book was written long before that. (laughs) This book was written in 1991. And and so that's, that's been 27 years since it was written. And they predicted 27 years ago when you millennials were... Little. They predicted what millennials would be like as adults. And they nailed it. It's just unbelievable. I read a chapter last night that talked about boomers, which is my generation, baby boomers, and what we would be like and what we would be seeing 
in the late 2010s and into the 2020s. It is unbelievable what they've discovered. So they nailed them as well. Based on this study, James Chung, whom I mentioned earlier, established what he considers um, a spiritual question that each of these generations are asking. The baby boomers were born between 1943 and 1960. There are between 60 and 80 million of them. And the question that the baby boomers asked in their lifetime, and those of you who are boomers, uh, I think you will find this to be true. The question that we asked is, what is true? We were really big about what is true. And the, and the objection of the culture that we grew up in was that Christianity is a myth. It's not based in reality. We have science. We, we have you know, the creation-evolution debate. And evolution went crazy during our lifetime. And so we want to know what is truth. And back in our day, crusade evangelism was huge. Billy Graham could pack a stadium. And if you could get people up there to talk about Jesus in a way that would convince them that the story of Jesus is true, you could have successful evangelism. And in that era, we had great, the writings of a C.S. Lewis and a Josh McDowell and, and others who wrote the apologetic works that are showing, defending the faith and showing why Christianity is real. And those books were really important to me and very important to my generation. Because if we can tell people what is true, if we can answer that question, and we can show them Christianity is true, then we can win them to Christ. The generation that followed them is Generation X, born 61 to 81. How many Xers are in here? 61 to 81. There are 40 to 60 million of them. And the Xers ask this question. What is real? What is real? They are the first fully postmodern generation. And culture objects to that by saying, and you remember this, truth cannot be absolute. We have the rise of relativism during this time. Truth can't be absolute because all of us see truth through our biases. And so C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell, now that's not for us. You Christians, you're hypocrites. You don't walk what you talk. And we had the scandals in the 80s of the televangelists that, that fell and all that stuff. And that really ticked off the Gen Xers because they are looking for what is real. They, they value authenticity. Instead of deep arguments, they just want honesty. Show me that Jesus authentically meets us in the mess of life. That's what they wanted. And no family shows were made during that time like the classics in our time, Gary, Leave it to Beaver. Right? I know you weren't related to any of them, but, but you remember, remember shows like that. Father Knows Best. That's the one I was trying to think of. Those are stories of families, just close-knit, solid families. You don't see that in the Gen X generation. You saw Cheers and Friends, right? It's about community. Um, they don't live to work. They, they just work to live. They're relational. They want a community to be part of, whether it's a bar or a social club in a church or whatever. They want relationship. 
So their question is, what is real? The millennials, you're born around, and these aren't real definite dates here, but you are born between around 82 and 2002. There are 80 to 100 million of you. Huge. The biggest generation that we have to date. The uh, spiritual question for the millennials is, what is good? Because as they look at Christianity, they, they realize that um, there, there are some things that are missing there. They say, you know, you're not showing us that God is good, that God is, is great. In fact, the millennials might say, religion is the problem. Religion is the problem. And some people, they polled some, some Americans and they said 56% of the Americans that they polled believe that radical Christianity is just as dangerous as radical Islam. They want to know what is good. Millennials grew up in child-centered homes. There was a lot more focus on the kids in your generation than there was with the Xers. And um, you're used to a lot of extracurricular activities, to sports. That's why your parents are running you to everything all of the time. You are more opt optimistic. You are more civic-minded. And you really want to change the world. You really do. Sociologists say that you are, pardon me, but you are the most narcissistic generation in a long time. I really because of Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and the birth. You guys gave birth to the selfie, okay? You birthed the selfie. I really don't know about that because I think selfies would have come sooner had we had the technology. And there are plenty of boomers who would have, who would have done the same thing. And so I, I don't know about that. But there's a fourth generation that's not been officially even named yet. Some call them Gen Z, uh, the Internet generation. They're those that were born after 2003, and um, they're going to start their, they're going to have their cultural day in a few years when they, they start into college. And they're, they're telling us that their question, their spiritual question is going to be, what is beautiful? What is beautiful? This generation never knew a day without cell phones and the internet. I mean, Al Gore invented the internet before they were born. <laughs> but they're going to be asking, what is is beautiful. Creative ability in this generation is off the charts. With technology that we have, just about anybody can be a whiz at doing things with graphics and so on. They like beauty. This generation judges a website, get this, not by the words in the website or the research behind the website. Doesn't matter. Well, it's true. What doesn't matter. They judge it by its graphic design. They want things that are beautiful. They're deeply concerned about justice for mankind, and that's a good thing. And so these are just, just snapshots of the generations that are living here on this earth at this time. And I want to say something about these younger ones to make a point about theology regarding these younger generations. I can't resist taking a shot at this. If our gospel, if our gospel is only concerned about where you go when you die, we are not going to answer the questions that these generations are asking. 
It is so critical for us to understand that. The old school escapist eschatology or teaching about the last days will not cut it with this generation. It just won't cut it. They are not interested in a pie-in-the-sky theology that is focused on going to heaven one day. They want to go to heaven someday. But they want to know how to bring heaven to earth. These generations want to know how does the kingdom happen now. And that is critical for us to know. Again, these are snapshots of the generations. Of course, if you're, if you're 75 or older, then you're part of a generation that came before these and you've been called the greatest generation and you still have purpose for being here and we younger generations ought to pay attention because you've learned a few things. By the way, millennials, you guys really do well connecting with your seniors. You connect well with boomers. That's something about you, that you respect boomers and you, you connect well with them, which makes me extremely happy. <laughs> but each generation is uniquely designed by God. And you can see how, how the, just these simple facts that I gave you can be challenges because we see things differently. We are different. We have different outlooks. If we were to, to do a deep survey of everyone in this room, we would just see we are, in some things, we are poles apart, it seems. But we can still work together and expand the kingdom of God and make this world a better place. And so we study these generations and get to know them just so we know how to relate to them, what our differences are, and how we can relate to one another. And that brings me to my third and final point. We need generational synergy. The word synergy, I, I, I put a definition for it on the screen. Synergy is the interaction of elements that when combined produce a total effect that is greater than the sum of the individual elements, contributions, etc. In other words, we can do more working together than we can alone. And that is true when it comes to generations as well. God does not intend our generation, whichever one you are in, God does not intend our generation to operate alone. Otherwise, God would have designed us to check out of here at the same time. God's creator. He could have done that. He could have done it some way where our whole generation dies at the same time while these little embryos are just waiting and all of a sudden, bloop, they pop into human beings and they didn't need us to raise them. They're just fine. And God could have designed it that way, but he didn't. God designed the world so generations would be on the scene at the same time and that they would work together to make a difference. God designed it that way because he's God. And he brings us into a world totally dependent on other people. That's how we're born. Human beings are the most dependent creatures that are born on this earth. There are a lot of creatures that are born, not all, but a lot of them that are born and they're just fine. They just go on their way and grow up and have their own offspring. But human babies are the most vulnerable, dependent beings that there are. And as we grow older, we grow to need this diversity in culture to fulfill our God-given purpose. And we need one another. This synergy, this, this interaction of elements in the generations is designed by God for our good. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's all for our good. 
It doesn't have to be the other way. We don't have to bicker and fuss with one another. God has purpose in putting us here together. And there are two ways that we can respond to the generations that are other than ours. Okay, these are the people that are other than you. Whether, whether you're a boomer or an Xer or whatever, these are the people that are other than you. You have to do one of two things with them. You can malign them or you can align them. You can malign or you can align. Maligning, of course, is putting them down, criticizing them, focusing on what you don't like about them. Aligning is realizing that God put us here together for a purpose, and regardless of the differences and focus on, on, on our lives, in our lives, we can still be a blessing to our world. There are unchanging elements in God's Word, and the generations can share those unchanging elements, though we might look at society a little bit differently at times. The things that we share have to be our focus. We need to work together. You know, when I was a young man, um, I, I came to Christ in 1970. That's how old I am. Some of you are thinking, how could you even be a boomer? You're so old. But I was, bo I was born in 55. And in 1970, I gave my life to Christ. And I didn't grow up with a lot of church influence, but I knew who God was, and I went to Sunday school off and on through my life and so on. But I met Christ as a 15-year-old in 1970. And then I took my girlfriend to church, and she gave her life to Christ, and she became my wife to this day, 40 years later. Um, but my pastor, and I, I need to get him up here again sometime to, to share with us. My pastor was really open to change. And he loved my generation. He absolutely loved it. Um, many of us began to get saved. My brother, Gary, was a hippie. I mean, he just was a hippie. That's all that's to it. He, he, took, he was a druggie. He sold drugs. He was a mess. And God met him. And he got saved radically. And he has been pastoring the church he got saved in for, what, 46 years, 47 years, something like that that he's been pastoring that church. But when all this happened, this is like in the Jesus people days and all the crazy stuff was going on. And uh, in our church, both groups were there, the maligners and the aligners. I will say that the maligners were very rare. I'm sure that my pastor knew of more of them than I did. <laughs> but they were very rare. The aligners were awesome. These, this is an old... Pentecostal, an old assembly of God, Pentecostal church, and these people embraced us. And I will never forget, we called one another brother and sister in those days, the older people. And so Sister Dim was one of them, and Sister Chapman, and Sister Latchford. These are people who prayed for me, and who loved me, and, and just really, they really reached out to me. They didn't ignore me and look at this weird generation. They loved me. And when we went off to Bible college, these guys sent us care packages in, in Bible college. They would send us things that they would bake for us and all kinds of cool stuff. And my pastor left a legacy. I mean, he loved the generations and he left a legacy. And there are literally dozens of us. I heard a count one time was in the, in the 40s, 
45 or so of us who are in full-time ministry today because our pastor loved us and embraced us. And I'm just one of a whole slew across this country that were impacted by that move of God in a little town of 2000 in central Pennsylvania. It's amazing. My pastor left a legacy. And as far as I recall, the maligners that I knew of became aligners. And I came out of Bible college and I was still wet behind the ears and my ex-hippie brother was now the pastor. And I was on his staff for five years and I was ministering now to those who had loved and accepted me as a teenager. I was one of their pastors. And they received from me. They listened to me. They were taught by me and I was continually taught by them. And I saw generational synergy at work. Wendy and I witnessed that and generational synergy became part of our DNA very early on. And it is something that we even unknowingly carried into this church because it's incredibly important to us. I believe that God wants the uniqueness of each generation to sing its part. And that together we can sound like a beautiful chorus in harmony that glorifies God. You will leave a legacy. You will leave a body of people on a mission. You will leave your mark, whether good or bad.